the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we invite you to ask and try to we try to provide answers to the questions that you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about worldviews, world religions. We talk about the past, which is, of course, history. We sometimes talk about the future, which is prophecy, and we talk about current events. Happy to take your call at 303-873-1935. Faithful Kelly is standing by in the in the studio to take your call at 303-873-1935. He'll ask you, hey, what's your question for Gino? And, and we'll make every effort to get your question on the program. Today, of course, marks Groundhog Day, February 2nd, and uh, wouldn't normally start off with Groundhog Day, but just thought I'd let you know that uh, Puxatani Phil saw his shadow, and um, well, after spending last year in quarantine due to the pandemic, so Puxatani Phil um, has made a comeback celebrating Groundhog Day with thousands in Pennsylvania on Wednesday, and of course, the Groundhog has forecast six more weeks of winter. That shouldn't come as a shock and a surprise as you look out your window and you see the snow falling. But according to Puxatani Phil, he saw his shadow and so um, popped out of his burrow. And over this tradition has been going on for some 136 years. And this is the 107th time that Phil has seen his shadow, members say. And uh, what's partially interesting is the way that this annual event got it, got started in Germany. And it roots back to what's called Candlemas Day in Europe with the Christian Festival of Lights that falls on February 2nd, midday between the start and the end of winter. Tradition says that if Phil sees his shadow, it's a sign that six more weeks are going to be wintry weather. If Phil doesn't see his shadow, it means an early spring. Now, again, you probably have already figured out that Groundhog Day isn't, well, scientific. In fact, Puxatani Phil's weather predictions, (laughs) hate to break it to you, are mostly wrong. And, of course, those people who pay attention to these things said, If we're being honest, it even defies common sense. So, what keeps it going? Why have a 135-year tradition? And I'm going to suggest to you because people, well, they love traditions. Now, for some reason, for some people, church is a tradition. Or church is is an obligation, or church is something that you may or may not show up to. 
But what I wanted to sort of talk a little bit about in this first segment is, uh, is again, visiting that subject of church attendance. And would love to hear from you. Have you gone back to church? Have you decided to stay away? 303-873-1935. And what's interesting, if you're a pastor, like, you know, I was a pastor for many, still am for that matter, you know, when you're teaching, and um, I've been the pastor of very small churches and medium-sized churches and very large churches, but most pastors know who's there and who's not. People are people of habit. They'll usually go to church. They'll probably sit in that seat that they've sort of staked out as their own or their family. And uh, so it, it shouldn't shock us or surprise us that pastors have a fairly good idea of who's there and who's not. Now, fewer you, – you probably began to realize that – a number of different outlets have been doing research and writing on this subject. And LifeWay Research um, has done some analysis. They said in 2019, 34% of Americans attended a religious service at least once or twice a month, according to analysis from a place called FAM Studios. That fell at 3% in 2020, or excuse me, fell to 31%, so it went from 34% to 31% in 2020 to 28% this last year in 2021. But that's probably not a shock. It's not a shock that less people attended church than prior to COVID-19. And the decline in regular attenders didn't lead to a rise in people who only show up on occasion. So those who attend a few times a year remain sort of flat over the last three years. But those who never or seldom attend church, this is an interesting statistic. Those who never or seldom attend church, it went up from 50 to 57%. So the people who rarely go to church, some of them found themselves coming back to church. Isn't that interesting? 303-873-1935. So church attendance has fallen. And so if we ask the question, most churches are back to normal or are not back to normal? How would you answer that? Well, by September of 2021, 98% of churches had returned to in-person worship services, according to LifeWay Research. But the study found that the average pastor (coughs) saw 73% of their church members in person on Sunday mornings. In other words, that means that one in four pre-COVID churchgoers, they haven't come back. So if that's the case, it says that there's been an, an improvement, that it continues to climb since 2021, but still not at the 91% who said that they plan to return. Now that's an interesting statistic in and of itself because they were asked the question, hey, 
do you plan to go back? 91% said, yeah, I plan to go back. But 9% said they had no plans of going back. So if your church is currently holding in-person services and you've noticed that the sanctuary is a lot more empty than it used to be, you're not alone. The majority of United States Protestant churches are facing the same issue. And of course, regular churchgoers are still mostly regular. There was a recent study from a place called Gray Matter that found evangelicals who attend church at least monthly prior to the pandemic were less likely to make the choice to stop attending during the pandemic compared to those who attended less frequently. Only about 11% of at least monthly churchgoers made the decision to stop altogether. And so the statistics tell a sort of an interesting tale among those who attended less than monthly prior to COVID, 25% chose to stop attending altogether when the pandemic began. How do we explain that? Is there some sort of reason? Is there a sifting process that's taking place? 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So glad you could join me. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on this cold day. 303-873-1935. Wendy, welcome to the program. Hi, Gino. How are you? Good. Uh, are you enjoying the snow? I personally do enjoy the snow. I, I, uh, like I said, had just recovering from COVID and COVID pneumonia, probably a bad idea to shovel, but I did it again today. Oh no. It, so, but uh, you know, that's, so if you hear me cough a little bit, that's why. <laughs> was it, it wasn't as hard as it was the last time. No, no, a lot less snow. You know, people are panicking, but as you, yeah. you've been here for a very long time, you know, this is just snowfall. It happens. You're in yeah. Colorado. Yes, and um, we never know how much it will be. I still think they should do postcasts instead of forecasts. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, um, I have a couple of questions about um, a passage in John 18, um, 37 through um, through, thir- uh, through um well, through through forty, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. it goes to forty. Yeah, um, they've been. He's been discussing discussing with uh, Pilate um, whether or not he's a king. <laughs> right. And so Pilate says to him, "So you are a king." And Jesus answers, "You say that I am a king." And then after that, he says, "For this purpose, I was born into." The world for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. So is he right. like, in tr- like throwing away kind of? No, no. He is in really why I came. Remember, remember, he, he, Jesus is incapable of lying. Yeah. And because he's incapable of lying, when Pilate said, 
you're a king. And he goes, yeah, I am a king. It's it, in, 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 in that way of – it's an idiomatic expression that basically affirms, yeah, I am a king. When you, when you said, I am a king, and then he explains the spiritual nature okay. of his kingdom. Remember, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, the, the reason why this becomes such an important part, at least of, of the dialogue – is because, like Herod earlier when Jesus was born, he was threatened. And yeah. so asking and answering that question is, should the Roman Empire consider Jesus a threat? Mm-hmm. And Jesus is basically uh, moving away from that perception. I am a king, but not of this right. world. Right, okay. he's of, of this world. Had the Jews received him... I'm going to suggest to you he would have established his kingdom on earth. In other words, in my view, because the Jewish people rejected him, for his kingdom is of a spiritual nature within the hearts of human beings. Now, one day he's going to return. And this kingdom isn't simply a spiritual kingdom in the human heart. He is going to establish his kingdom on earth. A literal kingdom. And so at that point, when Jesus shows up, should the Russians, should the Chinese, even the Americans, should everybody be concerned? In in one sense, is Jesus a global threat? I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, by the time he comes back, there will be a global governance. There's, there's several um, nations right now that think he's such a threat that they persecute their Christians. Um, citizens to the nth degree, like North Korea and China. Exactly. Because they, um, I heard someone say that they'd, um, they quoted the um, leader of North Korea saying that he did not fear nuclear bombs as much as he feared Jesus Christ. And and well said. Here's that. That's what I would say. I would say well said <laughs> yes. because. Um, Obviously, the world has nuclear capability, but Jesus is going to make good, not on his threat, but on his promise promise. to return, his promise to return. And so, yeah, we see this huge um, persecution problem all around the world that is so profound that Christians are literally being killed. According to Open Doors International, 19 Christians are being killed every day. Yeah. Every day. And so we see we see little bits and pieces of that manifesting in our own culture today, or not necessarily today, but a, a few days back, a Michigan high school student was allegedly suspended for calling homosexuality a yeah. sin. And look at what's happening in Canada. Right. And, yeah, clearly what's happening in Canada. So David Stout, he's a junior at Plainview High School in Michigan. He was suspended for three days for allegedly violating the school's bullying slash cyberbullying harassment policy. His great crime, his great crime, he simply said that he believed that homosexual behavior is a sin. Well, 
again, I've talked about this repeatedly uh, of of the idea of criminalizing the value of criminalizing homosexual behavior. The value of criminalizing homosexual behavior is that you don't criminalize the belief that it's wrong. This is what's so interesting to me about the push to criminalize or to legalize, first to normalize and now to legalize prostitution. It seems to me that we're going to go down that same road. Oh, yeah. We're going to go down that same road. So, and in it's your, like, it, like, let's start the ball rolling, and we don't care where it ends up. Right. And and I think that, that in your question about John chapter 18, later, of course, Pilate asks, what's truth? It's the gospel, isn't it? Well... Or is it Jesus himself? I think both. He says, he, first, he tells the truth, and then in John seventeen seventeen. He says, uh, well, in John fourteen six, he says, I am the truth. Yeah. And then in John seventeen seventeen, he says, your word is truth. And so what's interesting to me is that both the spirit and, and John 5, 6 says, and the spirit is truth. So the spirit and the word point to Jesus as yeah. the truth. The world makes the wrong choice. When it comes to spiritual matters, in other oh, words, don't remember we do that a lot. <laughs> in in their preferential treatment, remember, in, or excuse me, in their preferential future, Jesus isn't a part of their future. Yeah. And so, what's interesting to me, you know, is the idea of the people who say, um, "Well, what about people who have never heard about the gospel?" What's interesting to me about that statement it it it, it implies that everyone who hears the gospel will in fact receive it. But what we've discovered is that most people who hear the gospel reject it. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of different reasons. Judas rejected Jesus because he listened to the devil. Pilate listened to the world. Herod obeyed the flesh. He said, you have a custom in, in chapter 18, verse 39. You uh, have that a- was my other question. Was that just under Roman occupation, or had that been going on for a long time? I suspect. Jewish yeah, I suspect that it had been going on, perhaps for decades. Okay. <clears throat> so when he says, You have a custom. Now, how sad that Pilate knew the religious customs. But he didn't know that. <laughs> but he, he doesn't know Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> And so people are like that today. They understand that there are religious customs. You know, they go, hey, you know, I heard that Jewish people, you know, celebrate the Passover or Christians go to church on Sunday or fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. But again, they're ignorant of, of what their own church teaches. That it's not about that. Right. What it is about is what you brought up in this passage. Everyone has to make a choice about Jesus. I'm glad I made the choice I did, and you too. <laughs> hey, thank you for your call, Wendy. All right. God bless you, Gina. Mm, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. Love taking your calls. 
answering your questions, 303-873-1935. You know, I was talking a little bit about this uh, headline at ChristianHeadlines.com about a school suspending a Christian student after he calls homosexuality a sin. And some people might say, well, what was the context? And the context was this young man, David Stout, a junior at Plainview High School in Plainview, Michigan, um, was entered into a conversation. He was asked the question about what he thinks about a friend being gay. Now, it just so happens that um, David Stout is on the football team, and and he's also a member of the band. And the Great Lakes Justice Center, which is representing the family, said, quote, my client's religious speech and belief should be treated with tolerance and respect. That from David Kalman, who's the senior legal counsel with Great Lakes Justice Center, says, quote, public schools may not violate the Constitution and enforce a heckler's veto of student speech. Nothing David did caused any disruption or problem at the school. He has the right to express his opinion in accordance with his sincerely held religious beliefs without vilification or punishment from the government for holding those beliefs. Now, this is the right way of thinking about it, what David Kalman has said. It's asking and answering the question, can we have our own view of, of religious beliefs without vilification and without government interference. So the controversy began in April of 2021 when the young man was involved in an off-campus text conversation with a friend who asked his thoughts about a classmate being gay. And the plaintiff said that the Bible teaches that homosexual conduct is a sin, and in the Christian context that God created two biological genders, man and woman, the lawsuit says. The plaintiff stated that while homosexual conduct is a sin, however, everyone's a sinner due to free will choices, and he would pray for them to repent and follow Jesus. He also shared that he would extend love towards them because God commands it as Jesus died on the cross for them and extends his love to them, and all they have to do is accept his love. Now, what's interesting about that is his friend was offended by his beliefs and ended the conversation. And that conversation and incident at a band camp formed the basis of the school's suspension, according to the lawsuit. The band camp episode took place in July of 2021 when two freshman band members began telling inappropriate and immature racial and homophobic jokes loud enough for everyone to hear. Stout chuckled at the first joke, after which he politely but firmly stated that they needed to stop. And when they continued, he said, according to the lawsuit, enough, you, you need to stop. School officials blamed Stout for the jokes because he was the section leader. So, which, again, asking and answering the question, did he make inappropriate, immature, racial, and homophobic jokes? No, he, he literally just affirmed what he believes the Bible says about the subject. 
And so the band director allegedly told Stout he has to stop all further conversations about his religious beliefs with other students because if any student overheard them, they might feel offended. They might feel unsafe, according to the wording of the lawsuit. Can you imagine? What a brilliant satanic mechanism to shut down evangelism. To just simply refer to love speech as hate speech. To simply say, if you say what the Bible says about the human condition, if you say what the Bible says about the problem of sin, if you say what the Bible says about the solution, you're subject to a lawsuit. So Stout is asking the court to declare the school's actions unconstitutional and order the school to clear his record. He's represented in court by his parents. He had never been disciplined. He had never been suspended. He had never been expelled before this incident, according to the lawsuit. It says, quote, Plaintiff's private text slash chat messages and conversations voicing his personal and religious options on homosexual conduct were rooted in historic religious doctrine, the lawsuit says. Plaintiff is a Christian who adheres to the teachings of the Bible. He's morally bound to follow the universal, consistent, moral teaching of the Christian faith. Further, the plaintiff finds his dignity, his personal identity, and autonomy in the exercise of his sincerely held religious beliefs. Now, this is where we are. This is where we are. David Stout defended his son. He said, quote, We've always taught our son to be respectful of everyone's opinion. Be polite. The father said in a statement, quote, However, tolerance is a two-way street. David is entitled to properly express his faith and beliefs without being disciplined and suspended by Plainwell schools. We, we trust that the court will uphold David's constitutional rights and his school record will be cleared. Now, again, what's interesting, interesting, interesting is that this event is I'm even talking about it. A kid in high school just simply says this. Now, again, there's been little or no, no desire on the part of people, I should say not every person, to defend biblical sexuality with grace and truth. We concede that according to the Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, that heterosexual lust is sinful and that homosexual lust is sinful. But imagine if you say that, does that mean then that you're participating in hate speech against all expressions of what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Now, obviously, there's a laundry list of what the Bible clearly and repeatedly and consistently says about this subject of sexual immorality. It's condemned 
in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. It's condemned in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It's condemned again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. So really, we're left with a couple of options. The options are, is to ask and answer the question, is the Bible wrong? Is the Bible, did the Bible just simply get it wrong? And many of our family and friends and many people will argue, yeah, the the Bible has just got it wrong, just like the Bible got it wrong about slavery. Well, what's interesting to me is I'm happy to talk about that issue, about what the Bible says about slavery. And to ask and answer the question, well, did, are, are you suggesting that, that the Bible got slavery wrong and therefore it got sexual expression wrong? And the way that I would answer that question is, well, that's a category mistake. Does the Bible condemn sexually immoral behavior? The answer is yes. Does the Bible condemn slavery. Not in the same way, but for good reason. And maybe when we come back, I'll tell you why the Bible has a different view of slavery than it did of sexual immorality and and why they're not the same and why it's not a compelling argument. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. The number is 303-873-1935. Earlier today, I had the great privilege of interviewing Dr. Jim Dennison. We recorded it for you, and we're going to play it a little bit later on. But he has uh, a new book coming out called The Coming Tsunami, why Christians are labeled intolerant, irrelevant, oppressive, and dangerous, and how we can turn the tide. What's interesting about the story that we've been talking about, this young man um, who was suspended from school, his story could be a number of different stories all across the country. As people begin to stand up and say, no, um, I believe that the Bible says this about that. And and by the way, in his book, The Coming Tsunami, he has a section, he has a whole chapter on the subject of defending biblical sexuality with grace and truth. And in that, he addresses that great big issue. Is the Bible wrong about this subject of sexual immorality? And he um, addresses the issue for the people who bring up what we might call the slave card, and and say, hey, Bible's wrong about slavery, and it's wrong about human sexuality. Jim Dennison points out four things. He says, number one, slavery was a global fact in the ancient world. Nonetheless, the Old Testament provided a way for slaves to be freed in Exodus chapter 21, verse 8 especially if they were injured by their masters, in verse 26. Hebrews were to be held as slaves no longer than six years, Deuteronomy 15, 12. And then in the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 49 years, they freed all the slaves in Leviticus chapter 25, 50. And you might argue, well, why have it even to begin with? 
because they also took debt seriously. That if you incurred a debt, you had to repay the debt. And so, number two, Christians had no legal or political power to end slavery in the Roman Empire. But they abolished even the possibility of racial or social discrimination for followers of Jesus. In Galatians 3.28, it says, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And of course, in Philemon, it's only one chapter, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul appeals to Philemon to free his runaway slave, Onesimus. He basically says in that epistle, do to him what you would do to me. Would you beat him? Would you brand him? Would you free him? Number three the New Testament church gave those who were enslaved a family and a home. There was one reason why so many of the earliest believers that made up the church were slaves, pastors, and congregational leaders were drawn from the ranks of both slaves and free. Does that shock you and surprise you? That the pastor of your church could be your slave? Christians made no distinction in that culture and society. And number four, and this is important, not a single New Testament leader owned slaves or condoned such, even though they had the means to purchase them. Nicodemus, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Barnabas, Their example inspired William Wilberforce and countless other Christians to do all that they could to abolish slavery. And we thank God that they were successful. So the way that we think about this is, no, the Bible wasn't wrong about slavery. And it's not wrong about the LGBTQ issues. So the big question becomes, well, is the Bible wrong, or are we wrong? Have we gotten it wrong? Have we misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied what the Bible says about this subject of sexual immorality? And so for the critic and the skeptic who affirms that the Bible somehow addresses this issue, well, In their view, the Bible doesn't address the issue of monogamous, loving, consensual, same-sex relationships. In their view, it forbids sexual abuse, not loving sexual expression. And so there are many in the homosexual community who would say, hey, you know, you quoted Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, and Romans chapter 1, verse 26, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Those are the clobber verses that Christians use to beat over the head of of people in this issue. Well, no. The way that, that, that we would talk about it is to address it. There were a couple of authors. One one was named um, Matthew um, 
Matthew Vines and another named David Gushi, they popularize books basically encapsulating the argument that they that that the that you know we're we're just wrong we're wrong in our interpretation of the bible and he, Matthew Vines wrote a book called God and the Gay Christian the biblical case in support of same sex relationships he was a philosophy student at Harvard before he left school to become a full-time apologist for homosexual behavior He says of of himself, and I quote, like most theologically conservative Christians, I hold what's called a high view of the Bible. That means I believe that Scripture is inspired by God and authoritative for my life, unquote. But at the same time, Vines is convinced that homosexual orientation and behavior are not sinful. And so as a homosexual Christian, he's trying to reconcile his experience with God's word. And so a summary of his arguments, I don't have time to to get into them, but a summary of his arguments would include stuff like we can tell truth by its fruit. Forbidding homosexual behavior damages those with same-sex attraction, but celibacy is untenable for most gay people. The, the fruit of rejecting same-sex behavior shows that the prohibi- prohibition is wrong. And then he talks about the scriptures know nothing of same-sex orientation, only behavior. And so his view is because that the scriptures are silent on the subject of same-sex orientation, but they are very clear on the behavior. They forbid same-sex behavior in excess. That's his view. But they don't address monogamous, loving same-sex relationships, that early Christians shared this ignorance of homosexual orientation. And in his view, the sin of Sodom wasn't homosexuality, but gang rape. In Leviticus, where it prohibits homosexual relations because the ancient world viewed them as denigrating or feminizing. And since we no longer view such relations that way, these prohibitions are no longer relevant in our culture. He says in the Greco-Roman context, Romans 1 warns against heterosexual men who oppress and denigrate other men through same-sex acts, but not partners in a consensual loving relationship. And he goes on and on and makes further arguments. But again, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary released an e-book. You can find it online, and you might want to try and look for it. It's it's God and the gay Christian, a response to Matthew Vines. And, and in summary, they respond that the sin of Sodom described in Ezekiel 16.50 is an abomination. It uses the singular form of the Hebrew word tovah. This term is the same that's used in its singular appearance in Leviticus which calls same-sex intercourse an abomination. That word is the strongest word possible to describe revulsion, and it prescribes the death penalty. So if Vines is right about Leviticus, only the stronger partner denigrating the weaker should be punished. But in the biblical text, both are punished. That and so much more why that's wrong. This is Gino Geraci. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.